Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, some papers were released by the Ford government about long-term care in Ontario homes. Their plan looks great for residents five years from now, not so much for today. We'll explain. Hamilton Police Chief Eric Gert has announced his retirement. What's next for the police services? Well, we'll talk to the chief about it. And as people sit at home looking for something to do, many are turning to video games and online fitness. We'll talk with an expert about how that's turning out. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Here's a little inside baseball information. Um, I was really looking forward to our first guest today because we actually uh, booked her, I guess, three or four days ago. And this was uh, when the Ontario government, the Ford government, was making their announcement about what they said was going to be their plan for the future for long-term care in this province. And to that end, we had uh, asked the uh, long-term care minister, Marilee Fullerton, to be with us, and she had agreed and went through our staff. And uh, I had a copy of the report, of course, that uh, the Premier talked about the other day. Uh, I got a lot of questions about it, uh, a lot of what I thought were inaccuracies uh, and platitudes and not a whole lot in the way of an action plan, but that was going to be at least part of the discussion. But it's not going to happen, because uh, about 20 minutes ago, their office called and said she's cancelling, so she didn't want to come on the show today. So I guess we'll stash that under the uh, accountability file and see what's going on. But I do want to talk about this, because this is so very important. Uh, uh, you know, as we've been saying for, well, about 10 months now, uh, the problems that we've talked about here with the long-term care were not caused by COVID-19. They were exacerbated by COVID-19, but the, a lot of the stuff has been going on for a long, long time. And uh, I'm not so sure that the province really has a handle on exactly how they're going to deal with this or if they're even going to try to deal with this. There's so many different factors to this. And uh, to that end, we are so pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, who is a professor at Ontario Tech University and a long-term care advocate. Uh, doctor, great to have you with us today. Thanks so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Where do we begin? I think, I'm sure you've read the report, if not the overview of the report. And uh, oh, yeah. there's a lot of, uh, you know what, we intend to do this and we really want to do this and yada, 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 yada. Um, the, the plan that the, the Premier announced, as you know, Doctor, probably, according to their numbers, would not come to fruition for another four to five years. Uh, that bad news there is that most of the people in these facilities now will no longer be with us, according to stats by then. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> what about the here and now? Oh, it's it's a 34 page insult is was this what this report was. And you and I literally just did another radio spot and I said the exact same thing that you just pointed out, which I'm glad you pointed out that, you know, being blunt, uh, this will do nothing to help the residents right now. All of these residents in long term care, 99 percent of them will be dead and gone before 2025. I mean, the fact that you are only promising to provide 15 minutes of extra care per day by the end of 2022 and then you stagger it. No, another 15 minutes here the next year, another 20 minutes to follow. Get, are you kidding me with this? It is offensive. First of all, we know that this government is sitting on $12 billion in a contingency fund. They have the money needed right now to fix these staffing problems, but they refuse to. They have made the concerted and very active decision to say, you know what, the lives of these seniors and the racialized women, predominantly from lower income households who care for them, their lives don't matter. We're not going to spend that money, which you'd think you'd spend it to saving lives. I mean, this is about saving lives and you have the money. It's not that they don't have the money. That is what is the most astounding part. We know from CCPA estimates, the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, that you need $1.67 billion to, to like, effectively create the care standard by next year. You can do it. We have the money. Why are they not? Why are they staggering this? What, they're going to provide, quote unquote, up to $1.9 billion over four years. Give me a break. It's offensive. It's insulting. And it does nothing to help the residents and their workers right now. I got to ask you about that. What does up to mean? Does that mean we don't, if we, if we don't have to, we're not going to spend it? Yeah, pretty much. And what we've seen so far with this government, there's been a lot of promises. And, and so far, the funding that we have really seen, for example, the $460 million that was attributed to the pandemic pay bumps for the PSWs, the 50,000 PSWs that was announced uh, back in the late summer, that came from the feds. I mean, this government has shown that they don't want to spend their money on the seniors and the workers caring for them. They'll spend the money that the feds give them. But where's the actual money from our provincial government? That is the question. I'd really love someone to ask for that. I would also love someone to ask Mary Lee Fullerton if she ever did make an appearance. Why, if she, quote-unquote, and this is an excerpt from the report, which I laughed when I read it, the government's top priority from the beginning of this pandemic was and remains to protect the health, 
safety, and well-being of our most vulnerable residents, and here's the best part, and the heroic staff who care for them. Yet, nowhere in the entire 34 pages does it talk about the need for inspections. Does it talk about the need to institute IPAC leads at each home, which many people have said needs to happen, including their own long-term care commissioners, and which is already happening in Quebec. They made the wise decision to start that back in August. No talk of skills assessments. No talk about transparent reporting of staff levels and what to do to handle emergency staff shortages when the outbreaks hit, because we, are, we know and we are hearing time and time again that these homes do not have enough workers to provide care. We're hearing this from the frontline workers yet you have no plan to bring in actual reserve laborers to help fix this crisis that is happening right now before our eyes and it's only going to get worse with the increasing community transmission i mean we're in the thick of it and within in the next month with the holidays and we know what happens after every holiday the outbreaks are going to keep exploding people will die and you are not spending the money and doing what needs to be done to keep these workers safe keeping the workers safe also means and invariably keeping the residents safe because we know that the virus is coming in through staff unknowingly. They, they don't want to talk about that. I, I had the premier on the show back in the early summer, I guess it was, and I asked him about that. And, of course, the, the stats for, uh, for 2019 were appalling, the number of inspections that were done. I think it was 13 right across nine, the province. Nine, yeah, well, nine, yeah, yeah nine, 13. And, and, then, 13. and he said, yeah, we're going to have to fix that. So, hey, we just got the stats <laughs> about a week and a half or so ago, as you know, doctor, about the, the number of, of inspections they've done since the pandemic started. It's, what is it, four or five in the whole province? It's, not it's not four or five, not four or five with each facility. Oh, yeah. Total, oh, yeah. total. It's an embarrassment. The fact that, we, and, the, and the most devastating part is, is that when these inspectors have gone in, so we had an inspector go in at the end of November to Sunnycrest. I'm sure you know what happened to Sunnycrest out in Whippy. 118 of 119 residents all infected. The entire home is decimated. It is an atrocity what is happening there. They had an inspector in um, at the end of November at the head of that outbreak, and they were telling us that PPE were still being locked away from some staff. Some staff were not aware of how to use the PPE properly, weren't wearing the mask properly, weren't trained on how to actually use PPE at this stage of the game, weren't vetting people as they walked in and out. So it was effectively, you know, an open facility. Anyone could just walk in and out. I mean, we have people making sure that doesn't even happen in schools. (laughs) And, you know, although we know schools are now set of outbreaks, you know, the government pretends it isn't. But we know that long-term care homes are sites of outbreaks, and this is the hardest-hit sector, yet nothing. And we know when we do hear from inspectors, it is a grim picture of what is happening. They have not controlled this crisis. They have left the crisis onto each provider to figure it out, and that has been a colossal failure. And they know this, and that is the most frustrating part. We have this talk time and time again, and they know it needs to be done. They just don't want to do it. I don't understand why, and I don't understand why the press aren't more firm with Mary Lee Fullerton in asking these very pointed questions that we deserve answers to. Well, we certainly tried to today. We had her booked, and uh, you know they slithered off the hook. I guess they couldn't do this. Uh, there's another facet to this, and I know you and I talked about this back in the summertime. But uh, CBC has done some extensive reporting on this, Doctor. Yep. I, I got to get your read on this, uh, and it's about the profit versus nonprofit. Uh, and most uh-huh. of the, the homes in this province, of course, are for profit. They're privately owned. Yeah. Uh, and CBC's done some stats on this. Uh, the homes that have had at least one outbreak between the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, well, here are the stats for it. Uh, uh, we look at some of these here. Uh, Southbridge lost uh, care homes, uh, lost nine residents per 100 beds, 8.6 uh, at Breakout Care Center. Sienna Homes had 6.5. There's a long list of them here. Chartwell was 4.6. All of those mm-hmm. had death rates higher than the nonprofit municipal categories. All of them. The oh, average, the average one that's that's nonprofit is 2.8, uh, and the lowest one here is 3.7. Uh, and th- and this is not new to the pandemic. This has been going on for some time. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll give you some more stats since people should know just how terrible this for-profit sector is when you look statistically at the, at the data, especially during COVID. So during COVID, we know the for-profit homes had significantly worse outbreaks and more deaths. So and remember, five to six military homes, for-profit. 90% of the homes taken over by the province to date either by mandatory management orders or voluntary management agreements because they've effectively had these exploding outbreaks that they can't control, for-profit. Uh, more than 70% of all the long-term care deaths in Ontario in the first wave, for-profit. And people might say, well, maybe they learned and did better for the second wave. Nope. Residents in for-profit homes in the second wave are three times more likely to die. Um, sorry, three times more likely to contract C-19, COVID-19. And residents in for-profit homes are 10 times more likely to die of COVID-19 than those in non-profit homes. And that was an investigative piece by the Toronto Star. And they've been really good at publishing that data. Mm-hmm. So we know 
This is continued failure by this sector. And yet when you hear them talk about it, because people have asked these questions, you know, especially Marilee Fullerton will say, no, you know, profit status doesn't actually involve, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with the outbreak status because she's relying on a report that um, a researcher I know conducted that showed that it was community transmission that is the strongest impact of whether the virus enters the home. However, she conveniently leave out, leaves out the following stats that once the virus enters the home, that is what really matters. And the data also shows there in that same report that the, you have the, the greatest amount of deaths and the worst outcomes. So, sure, rising community transmission will explain how the virus gets into the home, and that's why we are seeing such terrible outbreaks now as the numbers go up. But once it gets in the home, these for-profit homes fail, and they know this, and yet there is still no oversight. And, you know, a lot of people say this has to do with the fact that we have a very powerful, very well-connected for-profit lobby group that, you know, some of these members are on the pandemic advising tables that are advising our government on what to do. And a lot of the policies that have come as a result tend to reflect the interests of that lobby sector, not the interests of the actual residents or the family members or the staff who we talk to and who I hear reports from all the time about what they actually need. And that is the really big problem that, by the way, has also been flagged by the Ontario Health Coalition, who has, you know, s- submitted a formal complaint to the Integrity Commissioner to look into these connections. And um, particularly as it was related to Bill 218 that we talked about the last time I was on your show, the, the law that now indemnifies the sector from any COVID-19 liability. It's, it's just horrendous. You know, when we've talked about this in the past, the profit versus nonprofit, I've always received emails and feedback from this saying, you know what, that's just these union people. They're just whining and complaining and bitching about no. this. Cause, uh, but the numbers here bear this out. The care is not as good in the for-profit nope. homes. There's more overcrowding. There's more sickness. There's more deaths. According to uh, Pat Armstrong, you know Pat Armstrong, of course, oh, at York yeah, University. I, yeah. uh, they, apparently, the, the for-profits, there are more transfers to hospitals, more deaths, and more bed ulcers in the for-profit oh, yeah. homes. <laughs> but but I, the problem I, is, as, as you've pointed out to us in the past, Doctor, uh, on the boards of directors of many of those for-profit homes are former progressive conservative staffers and politicians. So this government is obviously going to be reticent to bring the hammer down on these people. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And not just that. One of the very one of the largest for profit um, providers here in Ontario is uh, Schlegel. And uh, I'm sure you heard what hap- what's happening right now in Windsor out at the village of St. Clair, which is a Schlegel home that is just overridden. I mean, they need the help. They have over 100 cases in less than a week. It is exploding. People are dying. It is horrifying. The MPPs in the area are at the facility crying, seeing the body bags being taken out. It is horrid. The staff are saying we can't we can't we can't do it. Over 50 staff are at home isolating. They cannot provide the care of the remaining staff. And that is a Schlegel home. James Schlegel sits on the pandemic planning table that advises our government on how to keep residents safe and how to effectively cater the pandemic approach to the long-term care sector. Yet this is happening in his homes. So what is happening in the other for-profit homes? It's just... It's horrifying and it's frightening to imagine what's actually happening behind the curtain because make no mistake that iron ring, you know, the, was never an iron ring of protection. It was an iron ring of secrecy. We still don't know exactly what's happening in these homes, but what we're hearing from the frontline workers and the residents, it's not that much better. I'm, I'm always, when we get into this, and I've looked to see some statistics, I'm reminded of some of the testimony that we heard from the independent inquiry into this that happened during the summertime. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and people saying that, you know, we felt like we were those, those Mexican kids at the border that were being held in cages. Yeah. We're, we're prisoners in these facilities, and nobody's yeah. listening. And, and according to the document that we just saw here, the government's not listening. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that I'll, I'll give them for, and, and, <laughs> and I have reticence even being that, you know, patting them on the back because it took us six months fighting for this, that we did get visitor status. Um, Now we have the best policy across Canada in terms of actually granting caregiver access during outbreaks. It was for two caregivers. Now it's gone down to one in the red and gray areas, but we at least still have access that we hard fought for. And we got that in September. Mm -hmm. That is probably the only decent thing that they have done to improve the lives of the residents. Yeah, but Forgive my cynicism, but that didn't cost them anything. No, it didn't. And that's exactly why. And um, but I'm still surprised because there was a lot of people suggesting that the reason why they didn't want the reason why the for profit and a lot of the bad actors, be it for profit or not for profit um, aside, I didn't want them in is because of lawsuits. 
And I mean, it is no surprise that there are several class action lawsuits right now. There was even a lawsuit against the Ford government for their breach of duty to Ontarian long-term care residents, which also makes you wonder if that is why they really pushed through that Bill 218 so quickly in under a month. Right. And under a month, you can create a law indemnifying both you, the government, and the industry, the bad actors, from negligence. So now negligence is okay. They have legislated negligence as being acceptable. Now gross negligence is the new standard that is completely setting precedent and has never been done before. And it's just atrocious that we are actively and allowing and we institutionalize negligence in the sector with our most vulnerable seniors is astounding and it's a fact that i just don't understand if most people recognize that this happened not too long ago at the end of october yet you had nine months to engage in staffing blitzes by the way that was also not contained in the staffing report there is no mention of how to actually get and engage in a staffing blitz like Quebec has done. Quebec successfully got 10,000 workers in by the end of September because they started in June, which is what everybody was telling this government to do, and they didn't listen. Well, we're going to continue to tell the stories, and we're going to continue to talk to uh, people like you that are going to continue the fight against this. Uh, this is this is a human injustice, and it's got to be corrected. And uh, We really do appreciate your time today, Doctor, for jumping in. Uh, this is not the last conversation we'll have on it, but uh, we'll leave it here for now. Thanks so much. Thank have a great you. weekend. You too. Take care. Dr. Vivian Stapalopoulos, uh, professor at the Ontario Tech University and a very passionate advocate, as you can tell, for long-term care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Bit of a surprise announcement for an awful lot of people. The Hamilton Police Services Board met yesterday, and uh, during that meeting, uh, Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert announced that he will be retiring in February of 2021. Um, lots going on and lots to talk about. Uh, and to that end, we're pleased to welcome Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert back to the Bill Kelly Show. Chief, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks very much, Bill. And I just want to open with um, my thanks for the number of years we've been invited to your show. Uh, it makes us available to the public. Uh, the town halls, in my view, have been great for feedback. And, uh, you know, you've always always been a very thorough questioner. And uh, <laughs> that's what's needed because, you know, when you look at policing and, you know, the type of authority and responsibilities we have, um, and I mentioned this to uh, somebody else in the media, uh, I very much believe in uh, the media's role in terms of uh, reporting on what we do, and I also believe in the accountabilities that we have in place, which I've spoken of a number of times. But, uh, you know, you have allowed us through CHML to do that, so I just want to thank you for that. Uh, well, it's it's back at you, Chief. Uh, uh, this is a tradition we started at CHML a long, long time ago. I think Roy did it, I think, initially with the, with the Chief oh, Kim okay. Robertson. Uh, and, and yeah. of course, subsequent Chiefs Brian Mullen and, and of course, uh, Glenn DeCare and yourself uh, have always made yourselves available. And uh, and sometimes it's not easy. I get that. Uh, and I know there's a, a lot of people that want to talk about an awful lot of things, but you, you basically put yourself out there. We opened the lines up, and uh, whatever they wanted to ask, they asked. And uh, you were always there. You never backed down. You've never canceled one of those sessions. You just say, you know, bring it on, and we'll talk about this. And uh, mm. explanations, and some of it was good, some of it not so good, I guess. But uh, that's, that's, <laughs> well, yeah. that's what happened. That's the way it works in history. Yeah. That's that's kind of what you signed on for, isn't it, Chief? No, well, and we know that, right? We're in a we're in a high risk business. We're in a very um, center of the room focused business, uh, but that's okay because, as I say, you know, and we got to learn from things too, and that's fine. Uh, when we have the critical feedback, it does allow us to sit back and actually assess. I can't think of too many other organizations that have that immediacy for feedback from the public. Um, and then we adjust and, you know, rebuild and try a different method. And, uh, again, you know, uh, relationships are so important, and I talked about this again with the counterpart. Uh, it's an evergreening business because uh, even if I've established, let's say, 15 relationships with organizations, those people change. We need it further within our organization. So you got to stay at it all the time. Now, you're a local guy uh, coming up through yep. the ranks, joined the force almost 35 years ago now, the police services rather. You've done yep. a, a number of different jobs. Uh, what got you into this conversation? I know you and your wife talked about this for some time, uh, and you came to the decision. Uh, was it was it a tough call to make? Uh, not really, because I've always consulted uh, with my wife and family in terms of any additional responsibility, because as we well know, and I don't think she's listening, but it's important, like, we take it on as a team, as a family, uh, because we're all impacted by the decision I'll make. 
Um, so throughout, we've we've done consultation. My wife retired a couple of years ago, so um, she's established the order that I'll have to abide by, which uh, is very tactical on her part, but that's okay. Um, but no, we uh, we had talked about this for some time. I did let the board know uh, the chair in September, the board in October officially. Uh, but again, I I wanted to get through the budget cycle. And um, which we did yesterday. Now there's still council remaining, as you well know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to get through some of those major things, and you know, also for the defunding conversation. You know, it's it's not really the time to exit in the middle of that. And then, of course, we reported both the board in September to GIC in October. Uh, it's important to look at that, and uh, I think they're fair questions. I, I really do look forward to the community safety well-being plan and the people that are at that table to come up with innovative approaches that may not necessarily be police-driven that will help community safety. Because I do think there are alternate approaches and people have skill sets that exceed ours quite often. So, you know, if you're willing to take the work on I said I'm not proprietary on it. And uh, that's part of the innovation and change. So I'm very much in support of that. Well, and you and I have talked about this many, many times over the, the sessions that you've done with us, and, and, and you know where my stand is on this. I don't believe in defunding. Uh, I do believe in reevaluation and reorganization, uh, but it's got to be done properly and by the right people. And I know a lot of people, Chief, point to the Seattle situation and say, look what they did. You know, they had all those problems, and, and they defunded. No, what they did was they had the chief, a former chief of police, and the mayor on a committee and a couple of other people, uh, community-oriented people, that reevaluated and came up with recommendations and said, you know what, that can probably be done by this agency, this by this, and everybody was fine with it. And they, it wasn't a defunding. It was they, we went through this and said, okay, you know what, that's about X number of dollars that we don't have to spend on police because these guys are doing it now. It didn't get saved. It just went to other departments. And they said it worked out for, to everybody's benefit. You can't just arbitrarily say slice this much money from the budget now go make it work uh, because as you said and as your report said there will be ramifications when that happens yeah i agree with you and i read a recent article in the star and the person said well we need to look at detasking before we look at defunding and, and i'd agree with that because the work yeah. remains the needs of those uh, persons in crisis the victims all the things that we respond to and we know through the evolution of time, you know, it's not a 1950s, and I'm dating myself here culturally, dragnet situation where Jack Webb says, just the facts, ma'am, and you just apply the law enforcement and that's it. Uh, it requires much more strategic thinking, social conscience, are there better alternatives? You know, probably one of the things I'm most proud of, and it was under Chief Robertson, was our strategic approach to youth crime, because we really looked at, do we have to draw kids, and I'll call them kids, into a formal judicial system, are there alternate approaches? And that's also combines with indigenous thinking around restorative justice, you know? How do you reintegrate into the community? So we embedded that in the organization, we followed it, and we've seen reductions of the numbers of kids who are being pulled in the system, one, but also those who are recommitting offenses. To me, uh, you know, if you're making an impact with kids and you get a long-term benefit, which we've seen, that's the way to go. That's that, you know, upstream thinking. And no, I won't use the analogy again. Upstream thinking for how to handle things. So, uh, again, that was really Chief Robertson at the time said, you know, uh, Eric, I'd like you to put this together, do the research. So I did. It's not my thinking, but I kind of combined best practices back then. So, you know, if we can do things like that proactively, like that ahead of the situation where you have to do enforcement, I'm all for it. Well, and we've seen the benefit of that over the while, where people are redirected into other streams and uh, uh, to their benefit, of course. Uh, you know, in, in, instead of having a life that is going to be in and out of incarceration and things of this nature, uh, there are a lot of good news stories that, that result as, because of that. So it has happened and it has changed over the years, uh, and, as policing has too. And uh, the other question we wanted to talk about here, of course, is that reevaluation, uh, because there have been accusations made that, well, yeah, but they, they never do that. Uh, I've known you for a number of years. I knew Chief DeCare, Chief Mullen, and Chief Robertson. Uh, And the understanding I have now, I don't sit in. I was never on the police services board even when I was on city council. Uh, But I've had a number of discussions with them. And my understanding as chief is that evaluation is ongoing. It it always happens. Definitely. And I think we're always looking for efficiencies. As you well know, having been on council, uh, they're looking for how can you deliver this service better? How can you do a better job? Uh, we did the sexual assault community review team. 
And uh, at the time, I remember saying to uh, the group that I pulled together, um, and it was statistically based through the Toronto Star, but I said, this isn't about statistics. It's really about how do we make service better for women who are predominantly the victims. That needs to be the focus. So we, uh, you know, we had an oath of confidentiality because we revealed all the interviews, every piece of evidence in terms of the unfounded allegations, and came up with uh, a very robust uh, report that was uh, recommended, delivered, uh, publicly available, and uh, now we're implementing those changes, including that we got a, uh, an additional sexual assault investigator uh, provided it through counsel, um, approved by the board. So to your point, we always need to be looking at, I think the, um, I'll say it's the contradiction or the, um, not the oxymoron, but uh, you would think uh, with a, organization that's paramilitary and dressed in traditional garb and all that, you know, do we remain flexible? Are we thinking about alternate approaches? And quite frankly, we are in, in some cases more than private industry sometimes. So, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a uh, living contradiction, but, you know, we're all looking for how do we do the service better. Uh, last point on that is, uh, you know, I really look forward to the future with the type of people we're getting on our organization who are hiring. Uh, we look for diversity, and I talked about it before, cultural, linguistic, visible diversity. We look for diversity in thought and background. Um, what is your life experience? So can you, and we have people with advanced degrees. We have a, a member who has a doctorate. Um, that's what you want in terms of critical thinking to do exactly what you're talking about. Chief, when you uh, took over the, the chief's role back in uh, 2016 in your opening remarks, uh, you said your priorities at that time were building relationships and maintaining public trust. Uh, as you uh, step aside in February, how would you evaluate the public trust, uh, the, the relationship between the public and police services? Uh, and I think it's not a localized issue right now. This is a much broader discussion, I'll say worldwide. And obviously defunding is a portion of that. But I think you've already highlighted um, the conversation that should be happening is, is can somebody else deliver the service who has better abilities? As you know, and it's not a complaint, but we're one of the few 24-7 services that when you pick up the phone, we come. Um, not everybody does. So what comes with that is, well, look, can you solve this problem? And can you work on that problem? And, you know, can you just do this and just do that? And we have, and we've tried to be strategic about how we do that. Um, but I think there are opportunities for other organizations to take that work on. Um, so public trust has always been pivotal, and, you know, I don't want to date myself here, but going back to Robert Peel, you know, the police are the public and the public are the police. So um, it's about uh, trying to maintain that. It is an ever-present um, issue, and you're one decision or one event away from an erosion of that, which then, and I mean, look at Royal Bank and their, their uh, you know, examination of quality service. You know, one bad event negates about 100 good events. So, you know, even last night, I know our ride lanes, and we have been running them, but it's been difficult in COVID. Uh, we get very positive feedback from the public on that. I know that through the years that I've done them, including I had a certain sergeant who liked to do them out in Highway 52 when the snow was being driven horizontally across the road and my mouth was frozen. And uh, yeah, I was mumbling, and I think people thought maybe I was drunk. But, um, you know, they, we get a lot of positive feedback in those lanes. It is a proactive measure. It is meant as a deterrent. And occasionally we do get impaired drivers in there as well. So it's kind of indicative of, you know, should you do things proactively to prevent? Yes. Is it working every time? Well, not necessarily. We've seen some big tragedies this year with impaired driving yet again. Uh, but are we attempting to do the right thing in terms of public safety, traffic safety, and are our intentions, uh, you know, in the right method to, to reduce, reduce crime and make the quality of life better? Chief, as somebody turns the page and moves on to another chapter in their lives, the, the, the inevitable question is, uh, any regrets, anything that you would have done differently over these 35 years that, in hindsight, said, boy, I, w I should have gone down that road instead of this one? <laughs> so um, I had a staff sergeant share with me an expression one time, which I wrote down. I've since posted it in my office, and it reads this way. It says, wisdom comes from good decisions. Good decisions come from experience. Experience comes from bad decisions. So if you follow the chain, uh, the idea is like anything in life, you have to make some mistakes 
the question is, do you learn from them? Do you move towards a better state? And you can do that as an individual, but you also have to do it as an organization. So, you know, to your earlier points, you have to remain open to a different approach. You do have to listen, and then you have to adjust and move forward. And I think in many of the cases in terms of, you know, if you're looking at regrets, um, you wouldn't have learned certain things you can apply in other situations unless, you know, you'd made some mistakes. And um, it's, it's not an excuse. We're all human. Uh, but do you remain open to uh, the idea that you can change things and make it better, not only for yourself but for others? These are, uh, as you mentioned, uh, difficult times. Uh, there's a, a strained relationship. And I'm not just talking Hamilton. I'm talking probably, you know, especially in North America, uh, between yep. police services and public for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, what would your advice be to to the, your successor? And we have no idea who that's going to be. That process is going to start sometime in the springtime, I guess, in 2021. But uh, if, if you had 30 seconds with whoever's going to succeed you, what would you tell them? What would you advise them? Um, you have to remain um, consistent with principles. Um, we are guided by the Constitution of Canada. Um, I think that's an important document to look at. I know in some ways uh, it's a little bit ethereal and it has to do with um, uh, qualities that are qu not quite tangible sometimes. So, for example, you know, Section 2 of the Constitution speaks about the freedom of the press. And I'm not just saying it for your benefit, I think that's so important to a constitutional doc democracy. Uh, the other big piece is remain open to listening to the input that you get, but you have to be guided by the principles and understand that we are accountable um, in law for many things and have to follow those processes. So, you know, we have um, interpretations of the Constitution by the Supreme Court. I would recommend you read documents like that so you know what it's doing, you know, what is going on. And uh, I've been prohibited from talking in metaphors, but I will anyway. Um, in terms of relationship, it's, it's like a garden that needs constant tending. And it's not just the gardener that needs to tend the garden. It has to be all the people who are on that service because that relationship that you establish at the call with the group, at the public meeting, across the ranks, that becomes the reputation of the service. So uh, not one person can do it. It has to be a whole of team effort. And it, it is constant uh, in terms of tending and making sure that the garden's doing well. So you really can't take your eye off it, and you never really get there. Uh, hopefully someday you can harvest, but um, I don't want to stretch the analogy too much. Uh, but the idea is you really need to be invested in that um, effort. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gerd announcing his uh, uh, retirement, uh, which will take place in uh, the first week of February. Uh, Chief, a lot more time to talk about this, and hopefully we'll hook up again. It would be real nice to do a face-to-face -face at some point in the future. Uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't bet be? money. We well, never know. You never know. Uh, but thanks so much for the time today. Well, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. And if I don't uh, see you again, uh, all the best to you and your family. Merry Christmas, and uh, all the best for 2021. And you as well. Hopefully you can get up north. I hope so. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's been a different world for us in 2020, especially since uh, the lockdown and uh, working from home and a bunch of other things. And uh, uh, we're changing our habits in, in many different ways and doing things uh, and that maybe we haven't done before and doing a lot more things that we wish we had time for. Because you've got a lot of time on your hands if you're staying at home these days. So uh, what digital industries are thriving during social media? Because some of them are. Uh, to delve into this, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Christopher Alexander, professor at Ryerson School of Media, uh, a.k.a. the video games prof. Uh, Dr. Alexander, <laughs> good to have you with us today. Thank you kindly for having me. I appreciate it. Talk to us a little bit about uh, about what's happening right now. We're spending a lot more time on our devices these days, uh, and and a lot of the stuff that I know you've been teaching about and that you've been exploring and participating in uh, has, I guess, the the word that maybe comes to mind now is mainstream for a lot of us. Oh, I love that. So yeah, uh, it's interesting to point out that as as we saw the onset of the pandemic back in uh, late March of last year video game play and, you know, digital uh, apps have gone up significantly. And what's interesting about what you had mentioned is we know that we're spending a little bit more time on our devices, but it's interesting to unpack the nuances of what that is, particularly when it comes to things like digital fitness and issues of what we're really talking about, community. 
Well, let's let's delve into both of those because I, I had circled that one. The, uh, the digital fitness is something that I'm seeing from an awful lot of people these days. They were relying on this right now. Uh, as as one one friend of mine told me, she says, "So I don't go stir crazy." <laughs> so what's brilliant about digital fitness apps is they're cloaked video games, in my view. And if, when you're setting up your own courses to walk around your own neighborhood and then referencing those courses with your neighbors, that's community. When you're running from zombies, that's community. And that's the fitness <laughs> app. I'll delve into that in a minute. When you're working on uh, looking into issues of charity and you're walking for charity, there are fitness apps around these. When you are hunting pocket-sized monsters, which is still a thing, you're working digitally with a community. So what we're seeing now is people are getting antsy, and the nuanced nature of the antsiness manifests itself in varying ways. Of course, we're seeing social media influencers going in that direction as well, but the way that we come together to celebrate the nuances of how we work out, that's what's of fascination to me, and I think of many that are starting to join the foray of digital fitness. Well, and they're, they're, you're right, they're cloaking it. Instead of simply saying you need to work out for 45 minutes a day or something like that. I mean, I can remember uh, the, 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 I guess one of the games, about two years ago, I guess it was, remember when Pokemon made a big comeback? Uh, and, yeah. and we knew a, a guy who, a young man who had some physical challenges, uh, but loved this, and, and that's how he got his exercise. I mean, you know, if they said, hey, you have to go walk for a while, he, there's no way he's going to do it. But he starts going and playing Pokemon, and he's all over the place, and, and he's getting the exercise, he's having fun. It's, 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 it's really, I guess it's, it's, it's putting a spoonful of sugar in the medicine, isn't it? Absolutely. And when you look at an app like Zombies Run, where you are a character inside of your own world running from zombies, and you really delve into that narrative and you're running and you hear the sound effects of zombies coming your way from left and right, you lose yourself inside of that narrative. And as I mentioned, you're cloaked within sort of the objective, which is fitness. And it's the same thing with Pokemon Go. So I, I love the way you highlight that. It's actually absolutely brilliant. And I like what these apps are doing for those nuanced ways of connecting with community. Well, we've come a long way from, uh, you know, the, the, the simplistic things that we saw way, way back in the early days. How has it evolved, uh, Doctor, to, to the point now where it's, it's not just entertainment? It, it, it covers just so many different facets of our life. Well, for me, I used to be, and I still am, an avid user of Strava, the app, right, which sees a significant bump in usage since the pandemic. But as I mentioned previously, that's like Mario Kart for walking, where you're able to create your own courses based in your own neighborhood, and geolocatively, people that are in your same area can look at those courses, if you allow them, of course, and they can challenge those times. You can say, walk up and down the street 10 times route and challenge other people in it, and then if they decide whether they want to come and do the other side of the street or not, you can go back and see. So that respects social distancing as well to see how things, to talk about how things have evolved, but allows for this game-like game experience of fitness, which to me, that's incredible. I used to set up courses for my peers when I was cycling a lot more frequently. I stopped doing it because I've been cycling with my kids now, and there are very few, uh, well, it's colder now, really, but when I was doing it uh, more frequently. But these are the types of things that we're seeing, the evolution of how we connect with others for different causes, in this case, fitness. I, I we, we clearly know that, for instance, the pandemic here did not cause the, the huge uh, up up lift of, of, of video games right now. This was going on for quite some time. I, I used the phrase at the beginning of our conversation that they have become mainstream. What brought them to that level? Uh, uh, instead of this vision that I think some people might have had maybe seven, eight years ago, Dr. Webbs, uh, that's, that's something kids do uh, downstairs on the TV, you know, with their, 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 you know, nobody else watching and, you know, hey, you're spending so much screen time. Uh, it's, it's a part of everybody's, everybody, most people's lives these days in one way, shape, or form. I agree. And what you're finding is a lot of people have had a chance to sit down and think about, well, what can I do? I had particular stereotypes about what happens beyond the screen. What nuanced experiences are there for me? I had mentioned uh, that there are people that are walk. There's an app called Charity Miles, I believe. And you walk for charity. There's some people that walk. And I think they've, released, uh, they've uh, accumulated close to over $2 million across four different charities of people walking. And so that's something if you're like, you know what, I kind of want to give back, but I also want to give to myself in terms of fitness, I can do that. So I think people are starting to learn that there are nuanced and specific experiences that are relative to how they work, when they work, when they're able to work out. And people are acknowledging that physical fitness is a welcomed break to enhance traditional sedentary screen time.
Well, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, let's face it, a lot of us are not doing what we would like to do. Uh, you know, you're not going to the gym as much as you did, or maybe even not going at all. You, In your particular case, of course, you're not cycling enough. Uh, and physical fitness, is, is it's really part of the mental health, especially when we're in this rather traumatic time of a pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. There is the uh, Flybits app, which no longer, and I, I don't know when this happened, it doesn't require the app, but it can use the internal GPS on your phone. So you'd activate it, put it in your pocket, walk around see how much you're doing per day, how many calories are burned, and be like, oh, I do quite a lot when I go out, and maybe I'll go for a walk and see what that does. You get a chance to sit with your own data in different ways and figure out how you can modify to get a sense as to knowing yourself, your body, your habits, and how to enhance those. Well, and, and to do it in a, in a different platform. I mean, let's face it. I mean, when, when, when Fitbits came out a few years ago, I mean, everybody was in, hey, i got to get my 10,000 steps in. Uh, it can be a little tedious, you know, walking around on a track as many times as you want, counting the steps. Uh, but if you put an entertainment value into it, and, and it, it, it makes it a whole lot easier to do, first of all. And, and I, I think it takes the, the, the mental pressure that you feel like, i got to do another 100 steps. How am I going to make this go on? Uh, you're engaged in, in what you're watching and what you're doing. Absolutely. And what I like about what you just said is now people are starting to see what some of the lure for traditional video games is. Because when you're running from zombies, if you're really into the narrative, you're listening to find out where the zombie is going to come next. You're not thinking, well, how many steps am I close to 10,000? You're like, whoa, I'm really getting into this. I can immerse myself in a way that it's a secondary benefit to the narrative. Oh, I'm, I'm working out today. I'm really going to push myself to get away from this particular zombie. Like the, these are the kinds of things that these technologies afford us the ability to do if we seek these kinds of experiences. Now, you've been studying these things extensively and teaching about it too. How do you construct something like this? If you're starting at, at, with a, a blank page or a blank mind or whatever, uh, and you say, I, I got to come up with a new and innovative idea along the lines of, of what uh, Dr. Alexander just been talking about. How do you do that? Where do you begin? Well, the best way is usually how video games function. It starts from the community. And you would start with yourself. What do you want to do? Well, I want to work out, but I only want to do it by lifting one leg. Huh. Well, <laughs> why, don't I, why don't I see if I can strap a phone or put my phone in my pocket and see if I can get the reading of the gyro sensor for one leg lift. And then you create an I'm just making this up right now. You can make an app called the One Leg Lift Challenge and see how many people take I make Somebody can have that idea. Please give me some royalties or shares if you're listening to this. <laughs> anyway, so it, it's a situation where starting from what you have, you can build something because you can almost guarantee that how you feel about your limited time, your limited mobility, there's at least one other person out there that could benefit from that idea. Yeah, we tended to, I guess, if we were sitting around a house here these days, especially for the last eight or nine months, uh, thinking of ourselves in a singular fashion. But there are other people out there, that, as you say, if you come up with an idea that could benefit from this. Uh, and, and, and that's that's a fascinating part of this. I mean, it's, it's the old idea of throwing something out on any social media platform and, you know, being surprised at the response you get. I mean, there are people that will respond to it and say, hey, how come I didn't think of that? Or, hey, I'm glad you did think of that. Mm, absolutely. And so, as mentioned, it's a chance for us to think about what would work for us. And then, do you think that that could work for other people? Like, there are a number of influencers who have children, and they talk about what it's like to work out with children. Some people working out with their kids on their backs, for example, and doing push-ups. There are all these things that are nuanced, as mentioned previously, that allow us, afford us the opportunities to think about how we can engage with our own bodies, our health, but also a community that may connect with us regardless of what, of what ability they themselves have or do not have. Doctor, is there any way to quantify how many people have actually gravitated toward this uh, platform and are using these uh, that maybe didn't before the, the pandemic struck? And we, let's face it, had to alter our lifestyle significantly in many cases. That, that it, it now, just seems to, it's, it, it seems to be a thing now that maybe wasn't for an awful lot of people before February of this year. Yeah, well, the, the statistic that I'm familiar with, obviously, is the video game play one, which is yeah. up 75% as a result of the pandemic. But I'm not sure the nuance of how many of those might fall, how many digital fitness apps might fall into that gap. But we know it is increasing. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, I don't have any hard statistics off the top of my head, unfortunately, outside of the video games realm. I but believe. anecdotally, I would, I would think that it had to be significant. Absolutely, absolutely. And you can see it when people are walking around, what they're talking about. You can see it if you sign up for a particular app, how many users are doing what in particular areas. So, yeah, those, those can be seen. 
it's it's fascinating to see how and and who not just how people are doing this but who is doing this people that you never would have mm-hmm. thought would have been involved in this but it, uh it's it's one of these things where once you get exposed to it you realize that it, it you know it's 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 different uh and at the same time it's helpful to you uh both physically and mentally in situations like that and uh, that's that's when you get into this uh this euphoric feel that you you just want to keep on doing this and i know some people say that's addictive uh you know it's it's the fact that it's good for you i think is what makes it addictive i agree and many of the social influencers and users of these applications are pairing that with things like well what kind of meals can you eat to supplement walking for a long time and wait a hold on a second you might be interested in making your own foods without gluten for example well okay i also use this app and here are some gluten-free recipes so again we're talking about nuance you can go down a fairly long path to find a, a very customized experience for yourself. So it's a very interesting time that we're in, but the critical part of it all is be bold enough to search for an experience that resonates with you. And that's, I'm glad you brought that up. That's an interesting point because we heard, uh, I guess, in the early days of this, maybe heading into the summer months, uh, about, you know, the pandemic 15. People were putting weight on because they weren't going to the gym. They weren't exercising to the same extent. Uh, but you open up a, a whole new world for them when they do this. And, and it's not just, as you say, uh, playing a game or in, inventing a game, as the, as the case might be. It's a lifestyle change. And I know people that have done that, that have decided, you know, we're going to do this now. And they have looked for those choices, whether it's gluten-free or whether it's to, to go meatless, any number of different things. It, it opens your mind up to different possibilities that previously you maybe didn't even consider. Absolutely. And to go back to your point of starting at home, if you look at somebody online like Simeon Panda, who started off working out at home for, I think, uh, five years, he now has 2.28 million subscribers on YouTube, and he talks to you about how to work out, what to eat, things for beginners, how to work on squats, like he's got a massive following, followers, and those are some of the nuanced things that show you, hold on a second, I can start at home. He recently put out a video addressing now that people are at home, locked in their homes, here are some workouts you can do that don't stop your progress towards what you were trying to do. So again, nuanced experience, experiences created by uh, influencers and geniuses. Of course, you'll take a look at Simeon Panda and be like, okay, Simeon works out, for example. Where would you start? If, if somebody's listening to our conversation right now and said, I, I never knew about this stuff, I, uh, I, I got to get into this. This sounds fascinating. This could be the answer to all of my frustrations. Where do they go? How do they begin? Well, as I mentioned, it's nuanced, so I can give my own story. For me, yeah, I yeah. was interested in, in abs. So I was, I was looking at Simeon Panda's page, and he was talking about what the secret to abs was. He starts off in his beautiful video. I don't want to spoil, but he shows you what the secret is. And then he explains about body fat and how that first needs to get reduced as a means of starting to work towards abs. And I didn't know that. And then he supplements them with exercises. So I started with myself, what my interests were. And then I delved into Simeon Panda. I learned a little bit more about what he was doing. And I started, oh, wow, he's saying a lot of things that resonate towards me. So what I would say to anybody listening right now, where do you want to start? Start with that. And then you'll find, you will find somebody, something, some experience that mirrors in some way, shape, or form, and just read. Educate yourselves a little bit more about it, and if it resonates with you, maybe move toward that direction. There's, it's a whole new world now, isn't it? It is. It's a, I, I would argue in some ways it's a fascinating new world that is in some ways starting to unlock different po- possibilities and potential for people who maybe didn't think that this was possible, didn't think that they could grab soup cans and do lifts regularly, didn't think that they could just do standing on one leg for a certain amount of thing. And remember, I'm no physician. I'm a doctor of the mind, not a doctor of the body. So uh, there are different things you can find around the house that will help you work out. It's an incredible revolutionary time, depending on how you look at it. Well, especially, as I say, to go full circle on this, I mean, in, in the advent of this, I mean, it was, hey, don't waste your time on the, in front of a screen with video games. You know, go do something useful with your time. Now this could actually, for many of us, uh, be the lifesaver for us to try to get us back on track after a, a, an ugly 10 months. Absolutely. And if we can start dispelling the, the, some of the stereotypes surrounding video games and looking at the properties of video games, which, which things like interactivity, engagement, and now health and wellness, then we can start to categorize things beyond 
what we normally title as video games. Because, for example, if we go back to Pokemon Go, there has yet to be any statistical announcement of, of how much kilometric data was generated by Pokemon Go to date. There is a number that uh, Niantic Games has of how far people are walking, where they're walking to, how long, how many per user. That kind of data is monumental to show people, to dispel stereotypes, and explain, whoa, people are walking an awful lot. Some people like to make fun of the Pokemon goers. If you started realizing, whoa, all these Pokemon goers are going outside and walking, and in some cases talking to people, even at a distance, they're like, whoa, they're really putting in the work. Well, yeah, that, I'm glad you brought that up because there is a social element to this as well. I mean, notwithstanding the fact that we have to be careful about, as you mentioned, distancing and everything else, uh, even people that may have some, some problems with that uh, can break through some of those barriers and do it through, uh, through the, the stuff that they're using with, uh, with their devices. Absolutely. There are times of days, and if you go back to Strava, the times with, in which you complete a course are not relative to set certain times of day. There are marathons that happen, some in real time and some not in real time. And I think some like 44% of Strava users are doing uh, solo marathons on their own. So that data is indicative of people respecting social dis distance and people respecting their own time and, you know, taking things in stride with their own lifestyle and potential and ability. Well, I know so many people that have been exposed to this and just love it now. And it, it, as, as you say, it's become part of their, their lifestyle, their adopted lifestyle. Uh, I guess the last question we'll ask you here is, is it, it, in your experience, for people that have gone down that road and, 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 and discovered, rather, that, that this can actually be a benefit to their lives, when we come out of this pandemic at the other end, uh, do you think they can hang on? Is, is this going to stay and maintain as part of their lives? I think so. Once you look at, now remember, you're talking to somebody who had a Nintendo DS that had a pedometer in it and would close his Game Boy and walk around and count his steps. But I absolutely believe that if you've been looking at an app like Strava and you're starting to map where you walk around and you realize, hold on, there's a route to work. Can I walk a little bit further before getting on public transit if I need to? Uh, and, and start timing that. I think these are things where they're starting to see their own behaviors and habits and they're working with their own data to be like, okay, I can help myself. I can help others around me. I can move forward while doing work, while playing, while spending time with my kids, while doing other things. I'm expelling energy, and now I can see that. What does that mean for me? Well, I shouldn't be so hard on myself because, actually, I walk this amount of steps per day. So I do believe it's something that can and should stick with us in some way, shape, or form once we get to the other side of this. Fascinating. Uh, Dr. Christopher Alexander, professor at Ryerson School, uh, the video games prof. Uh, I'm so glad you, you had some time for us today. I've talked to so many people about this over the last couple of months, and I figured we need we need to get somebody on that can explain this, this phenomenon. And it's not becoming a phenomenon now. It's becoming a mainstream element for so many people. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.